Welcome to the Bridge Church Podcast. Our purpose statement at Bridge Church is to reach people where they are and help them grow. We hope today's message inspires you towards growth, and we pray it's life-changing, and we hope to see you soon. Oh man, it is good to be in the house of the Lord one more time, and that was something that you would kind of say in the past, but it, it, it reminds me, you know, I'm from Philly, and I got a chance to see what I think is the best hip-hop band of all time, The Roots, in person before, right? And they were like, I enjoyed listening to the album, but in person, they would do this thing where they could just make any song. They would do like old school hip-hop. It, it would just create a whole new experience when you were there live. As the young folks say, it hit different. <laughs> and let me tell y'all, I can listen to a playlist of worship as I do. I can listen to a sermon and, and watch, you know, online as I do. But when you're in the house of the Lord with the saints, it hit different, don't it? You know, so I'm glad that you're there and I'm glad that you have joined us online or wherever you may find yourself. Well, today we do conclude uh, the second part of John 17 which we described last week as the high priestly prayer. That's what it's known as. And it's a whole chapter of Jesus praying. And it's an extraordinary prayer in part because of the context. It's literally the last thing that he says in the presence of his disciples in the Gospel of John before his arrest, his crucifixion, and his resurrection. And you know, when... Someone says, when it's the last thing that someone says before you're going to see them uh, for some time, it's very important that we listen. And so if you haven't listened already to the first part of the sermon, I mean of the chapter, which we did last week, I'd encourage you to listen uh, to it in your own time. Today we're going to focus on just the second half of the prayer in which Jesus spends the majority of the time focusing on one thing. And that's what I like to take our time today, focusing on one thing. And it's something that we still struggle with 2,000 years after Jesus uttered this prayer. And so similar to last week when we kind of read through the entire, you know, portion of, of Scripture, we're going to do that again. Um, but we're not going to read the whole second half because it's pretty long. But when I, I would encourage you in your own time to read the whole chapter. Um, but, but I'm just going to take some excerpts. And I want you, us to listen together. John 17, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Down to verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may also be sanctified in truth. 
I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be, they, they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name. And I will continue to make it known. That the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. There's a word that you keep hearing repeated over and over again in this prayer of Jesus. One. Father, may they be one as, as, as we are one. Help them, Father. Help them to see and help them to work. And, and why did Jesus pray so fervently and repetitively in his disciples' hearing for unity? Now, Jesus, being all-knowing, knew that maybe this was going to be a challenge to his disciples. You see, they had already displayed why this would be a challenge. We call them the disciples, but we forget that this group of individuals at this point 11, because Judas has already gone to betray Jesus. So this, this 11, they had already shown their face. That night they were arguing about who would be the greatest in heaven, in the kingdom. I mean, you had a collection of, you had uh, Simon the Zealot, which the Zealots were a group that were committed to overthrowing Roman rule. They were, they were revolutionaries. And you had Matthew, the tax collector, who was working for the government in the same group. I mean, it was a recipe for this type of conflict. And he knew that that was going to be necessary and important. I think it's, it's so significant Chappella reminded me today is uh, what it called Pentecost Sunday. It's 50 days after the resurrection that the church has historically celebrated the day of Pentecost when the Spirit of God uh, actually came down in, 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 in among their midst. And that really is the church's birthday. And it's, a, it's significant that we talk about this today because Jesus essentially said, y'all are the game plan. There is no plan B. The church is my strategy for reaching the world. And Lord, we need, Father, we need them to be one. And he also knew the enemy's strategy and that the, the most likely way that the enemy would attack them would be to attack their unity. You see, unity requires humility. It requires hearing from another perspective and point of view. And people who oftentimes are in power find it hard to defer to those without it. It's hard for us to maintain unity. 
There's a reason that, 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 that there's an age-old strategy called divide and conquer. And it didn't take long for the church to struggle with this. I mean, I mentioned Acts chapter 2, Day of Pentecost, which we celebrate and commemorate today. Four chapters later, probably a few weeks later in the context of time, in Acts chapter 6, we see Hellenistic Jews and Hebraic Jews. The Hebraic Jews were discriminating against the Hellenistic Jewish widows. Basically, you just need to know that there's culture going on and ethnicity going on, and, and the widows were not being um, served. And so there, there was an issue that they had to bring to the disciples just a few weeks into the beginning of the church. Well, you know, the, 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 God, the New Testament is set up as like John, Acts, Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, right? Let me just give you a just an example of each chapter. So that's Acts. Let's go to Romans. In Romans chapter 14, there's an issue because some ate meat and some didn't, and they were beefing about that. Beefing about some... <laughs> In Corinthians chapter 1, Paul approaches them and says, look, some of you say you're of Apollo, some of you say you're of Peter, some of you say you're of Paul, and then the real spiritual ones say, I'm of Jesus. That's Corinthians. Oh, but what about Galatians? In Galatians chapter 2, you have those who were circumcised and those who weren't circumcised. And, and the ones who were circumcised were looking down on the ones who weren't circumcised. Ephesians. Paul's talking about the wall between Jews and Gentiles needing to be torn down because there was animosity. And in Philippians, you got Judea and Cintiq, two women in the church that just couldn't get along. And I just don't have time to keep going on. But that's just the next five books. And it's not simply unity for unity's sake. There's a direct relationship between our ability to be unified and our ability to effectively tell people about Jesus. Look at what he says in verse 23. I in them and you in me that they may be perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love me. You, you realize that... If we don't have our stuff together, what kind of kingdom experience are we inviting people into? If you're seeing a family that's like bickering and arguing and fighting and they're like, hey, you want to come over for family dinner? It's like, no, I'm good. Thank you. I can do bad all by myself. And not only that, but the, this theme and this fight, we've seen it play itself out in American history throughout its inception. Probably most famously, June 16th, 1858, it was a Senate debate happening in Illinois between Stephen Douglas and who would become the future president, Abraham Lincoln. And he famously said, a house divided against itself cannot stand. I believe this government cannot endure permanently half slave and half free. I do not expect the union to be dissolved. I do not expect the house to fall, but I do expect it will cease to be divided. It will become all one thing or all the other. United we stand, divided we fall. Lincoln was pointing out the utter contradiction of the American experience in slavery. How could you say that you're the land of the free where you enslave a significant amount of the population and try to coexist in this way where you have one group of people being subjugated and the other people not? And a hundred years later, we would still find that after, of course, a civil war in which the house was divided, 
in which is still to this day the bloodiest war in American history, even after that, there was division about the meaning behind the war. And essentially, the status quo in the South became the subjugation still of African Americans and people of color. So much so that you have Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. saying in 1960, over 100 years after Lincoln gave his speech, I think it is one of the most shameful tragedies of our nation that 11 o'clock Sunday morning is the most segregated hour in America. Now, what is sometimes lost in translation in this quote is King, who led a church that was primarily black, in which he explains in the, after this line in the quote, isn't exclusively talking just simply about a lack of diversity. He's literally talking about the fact that at this time, the status quo in many of the churches that surrounded him in Alabama and in, in Georgia literally would not allow black people into worship. Like, it was, when I say segregated, segregated like, <laughs> y'all can't come in here. And in fact, C.T. Vivian, who was a, a minister at the time, led a protest to try to desegregate the church. The church was merely reflecting the beliefs of the world. Which is why Jesus prays, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. You see, overcoming bias to fight for unity has been the major battle in the American church. Well, you might go, well, that was 1960. In 1999, two Christian sociologists named Dr. Michael Emerson and Christian Smith did the first of a study of its kind in which they, they examined the perspectives on the issue of race among white evangelical Christians and black evangelical Christians. And when I say the word evangelical, what the way that they defined it was not connected to any kind of political ideology, but simply what was considered a, 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 you know, a commitment to God's word, the focus on Jesus as the center point of the biblical story, an importance in activism and, and, and social as well as evangelism. That's what they, how they defined it. In the book, it actually wanted to look at how these two groups examine and approach the issue. Now, remember in the 90s, this was uh, after the Rodney King uh, you know, video had come out and the uprisings that followed the incredible, incredibly unjust uh, acquittal of all the officers involved, the O.J. Simpson trial. All of these things had happened, and so it was a hot-button issue. And they compared also looking at non-Christian perspectives to Christian views. So they wanted to see what Americans had to say in general and then specifically in the church. And this is what they found. He said that what we discovered was that if, to use a football analogy, there's 100 yards in a football field. And he said, if black and white Christians in America, they're about divided by the 50-yard line in terms of the way that they see race. Like, one sees it at a zero, one-yard line, the other one at the 51st-yard line. Way far away. He said, but in the black and white church, we're divided by 100 yards. The problem is actually worse in the church than it was. Well, you still might go, but that was 20 years ago. Well, this past month, the Barner Group released a follow-up involving Dr. Michael Emerson. Over 20 years later, they asked the same questions. They also included some other diverse groups that weren't included. 
And they ask, one of the questions they ask is called Beyond Diversity. You can look at their site for the entire uh, research. It's very fascinating. But they ask one of the questions, historically, the U.S. has been oppressive to minorities. Yes, you know, strongly agree, strongly disagree, mostly agree. Of those who said yes, historically, either strongly or mostly agree that the U.S. has been, been oppressive to minorities, out of Christians, 32%, of white Christians say yes. Only 30, one third. In comparison, 75% of African Americans said yes. Now, for those that are not really in the social science world, I, I, I gotta tell you, because I, I majored in, in Africana studies and sociology, you don't see this type of a gap in statistics. Like usually, if you think about it, it's more like a, an election of a sort. When somebody wins by like eight points, it's kind of considered decisive, or a 10-point gap is pre considered pretty major. To see a 40, 50% gap is mind-blowing. Someone said, looking at this, it's like we're living in two different worlds. Now, they also looked at anti-Asian, uh, what it, they, they looked at Asian perspectives, but this was before the anti-Asian violence, which was done by a white Christian who was going to church. And, and so they said that the views have changed probably so significantly since that, that you know, it, it's just kind of uh, looking at, they have to re-examine that part. But here's the thing, after the demonstrations last summer, the gap got even worse. According to Barna, white Christians that they polled were even less motivated toward racial justice after summer 2020, while African Americans were more. Michael Emerson would say, before we were 100 yards apart when he wrote Divided by Faith. Now we're 110 yards apart. And this has been after so much emphasis on racial reconciliation, but the problem was it's doomed to fail when we try to focus on unity without justice. Because as we talked about earlier, that there's, uh, whenever there's any group that's in the dominant position of power, regardless of if that's uh, a certain ethnic group or depending on the history, it could be gender, it could be something else, that there, that there needs to be a way to undermine it and look at and systemically and shift changes, which is why in Acts chapter 6, the way that the disciples dealt with it is they didn't just have come together and say, let's do kumbaya. They said, okay, we got to change this systemically. And they put different people in position so that those widows who were being neglected we're not being neglected anymore. Here's the point. To live out this issue of unity, we have to also deal with this issue of uniformity. We fight for unity and against uniformity. Because you see, uniformity says something else on top of unity. It doesn't just say we should all be together and unified and solidified, but also we should be the same and do things the same and act the same and think the same. And uniformity always ends up suppressing one group's concerns, one group's culture over another's. Their way of worship over another. And justice pushes back against uniformity because it highlights the image of God in all of us. And the way of Jesus is inclusion, not exclusion. Unity, but not uniformity. And we at this church are committed to honoring the image of God in all people who come through these doors.
Because look, this, this is the biblical perspective. In 1 Corinthians 12, 26, it says, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Do you see what's happening there? What Paul is saying and what he's bringing out is the fact that if you want unity, then you have to recognize that when one part of the body is saying, we want justice, we need justice, the other part of the body can't say, well, let's wait till all the facts come in and kind of assume that nothing is wrong with the world until we see otherwise. And that's why Pastor James launched Pray, March, Act. You know, it was a, a year ago, it'll be a year on Tuesday since George Floyd was murdered. And we were among many who were provoked to action during that time. And that prayerful protest that Pastor James was led to lead brought over a hundred churches of all ethnicities together. It was beautiful to see. Right there we started and poured out from the parking lot all the way up to Fifth Avenue and just took over the entire street. Because to fight for unity, we must fight for justice. But that's not enough. Because it would be problematic if we were to call out issues out there, but not look in here to also see in what ways does our commitment need to be challenged. Can I talk about us for a second, church? Well, I mean, I'm going to anyway, but I figured I'd try to be polite and ask your permission. We fight for unity through community. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25, it's a passage that many of you may know. It says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. One of the prerequisites that the author of Hebrews is, is speaking to and is addressing is that he says we have to stir one another up in love and good works, not neglecting to meet together. There's probably been no time, at least in our lifetimes, where the need for community has been as clear as it has been over the last year. A recent survey revealed this starkly. They looked at an average of adults reporting symptoms of anxiety disorder or depressive disorders, and they looked at it was about 11% looking at January to June in 2019. That number spiked up to 41% in January 2021, and we know what the difference there is in a, a scenario which was a, a, a necessary, you know, kind of lockdown situation. But even before that, there was another study that, that looked, uh, a large study of 6,000 adults in Ireland that found that individuals who regularly attended church services had fewer depressive symptoms than those who consider religion important, but who don't frequently worship. The result was based on self-reporting of these folks. And, and so we're just, and we're not just talking about physical meeting together. 
because we know in some cases that's just simply not practical during this pandemic. But what we are saying is that even virtual engagement, that in all the ways possible, that there has to be a space in which I prioritize common unity. You see, that's the two words that make up community, common unity. I have to fight for that in order for us to fully engage. And, and this is tough nowadays. For, I mean, we have to think about safety in ways that we didn't before. But also, on a more basic level beyond that, it's not sometimes just the, when we are creatures of habit and this whole situation has messed up our routines. And when you get out of a routine, it's just kind of hard to get back in it. You know, this is why so many of us keep <laughs> making resolutions every January to, you know, work out and then, you know, something, and you have good and you might do good for a few months and then something will happen. It could be a sickness, a busyness at work, something. And then you get out of that routine and it's just harder to get back into it. But also, we got to look at the reality of trauma. For some of us, the enormous amounts of loss that we've experienced over the last year makes the idea of getting together with other people just difficult to connect with because of just all of the lingering unworked out emotions and fears that have come with what has been lost. Yeah, the guidelines and the CDC and now things are helpful, but, but sometimes that doesn't just speak to the deeper place. And then lastly, <laughs> there's just some of us that just don't like being around other people. <laughs> like that was always the case. It's just now I got an excuse. <laughs> I could just do, be by myself. But here's the reality. We know that all these, in, in, in light of, and in, in spite of being sensitive to all these factors, there are real outcomes that get unleashed when we don't find ways to fight for fellowship, to fight for community. Because we were meant to not be alone and we're better together. Amen? But here's the thing, we can't fight for unity without fighting for community. So all I'm asking, I'm not giving you a, a, a simple solution, I'm just saying fight for community. Whatever that means, fight for the, the, the spiritual uh, fruit that comes from us being together, growth groups, online, whatever you're at. It's like some of us are like, yo, I'm looking to get away. I'm looking to have a vacation. I'm going to find a way to do brunch and whatever we need to do. Well, just keep that same energy when it comes to worship. Just keep that same energy when it comes to your spiritual family. That's all. Whatever that looks like. But here are some specific, here's a specific practical point. Just for somebody that's like, well, what can I do? We have some uh, things we're calling bridge barbecues that are coming up. The first one is next month. Can y'all believe we halfway through 2021 already? Woo. June 26th, you can mark your calendars, July 24th and August 28th at Fort Greene Park. From 1 to 5, we're going to be having just time together to just fellowship and be around each other. And I just want to encourage you to consider being a part of that. We have to fight for community in order to fight for unity. And the last part is we, we have to fight for unity by being one unit. You know, the core word in unity is unit. And 
I think about that in the military sense. They, they, they refer to themselves in a the military context as units. And a unit in a military context is a tight group uh, specifically for a certain type of combat maybe or a certain support role. And, 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 and it's part of the larger organization, right? So you might have a Navy SEAL that's based in South Carolina and, and that's their unit, but it's still part of the broader branch of the military. And we have to fight for unity by being in one unit. And that unit in the context of what Jesus pre prays for and what we even acknowledge today with Pentecost is the local church. I want you to do something real quick. Just pull out your hand and just kind of stick out one finger. And just like hit yourself in the head with the finger. All right? Now, I want you to make a fist. I ain't going to ask you to hit yourself with the fist. But if you were to just do that, you see that it hit different. <laughs> Both of them are attached to the hand, but the difference is one is solidified and together, and the one is just by itself. And see, in the military, that's why they organize in units. You don't never just see an army of one because they know that to have maximum impact that you need to be together. But here's the thing that's also part of the military. There's a hierarchy involved. There's leadership involved. And we see that as well with the Trinity. The unity of the Trinity itself shows us that we're not supposed to be alone. And that hierarchy isn't bad. Sometimes you people start here, all right, hierarchy, whoa, wait a minute. That sounds like power. The amazing thing in this prayer is Jesus prays. He says, Father, you have given me authority. I've run the play that you set out for me to do. Glorify your son as I have glorified you. There was this sense, the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit each have specific roles, and there's even a hierarchy in the divine triune God that says, okay, the Father instructs the Son what to do. The Spirit, whose job is to glorify the Son. And then the Son does everything he does by being filled with the Spirit. They all work together. There's not a sense of have, the hierarchy doesn't mean that there's a hierarchy of value. They're all God. And, and what the Trinity shows us is that that's the same way that there is with you. Just because somebody might have a different role than you doesn't mean that they're more important than you. See, that's a worldly concept that's, that elevates the certain people that are on stage above the people who are in the back, making sure that the people on stage can be heard. All it would take right now is for Mike to hit a mute button and I could talk into my mouth until I, my lips run dry and it would mean absolutely nothing. Nobody would be able to hear me. We all need each other. It's interesting because when certain people exert their sense of authority, we like it. When the queen says, get information, we don't have any problem with being in formation. But when the king says, get information about how to live your life, all of a sudden there's a problem. And as a local unit, it's key that we recognize and acknowledge that leadership and responsibility also is part of what this process is because in the military, you can only survive if, the, if everyone's listening to the same commander and they say, we're going to do it this way and we're going to have this strategy, even though some other people in the group, in the unit might be, I don't think that's the best way to do it, but they don't form their own unit within a unit. They just go along with the plan. Because in Mark 3.24, Jesus said, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. Lincoln didn't make that up. He got it from Jesus. 
thinking, I'm like, why is everybody giving Abraham Lincoln credit for this? And, and, and so here's a, a practical way that this works itself out. The key focus, I think in our context, is, is, is to recognize that if we're going to be one unit, one church, that there also has to be a recognition that, 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 that there are leaders that are committed to living out this plan and to hearing from God and to serve a certain way. And, and we have a very capable, competent, and courageous leader in Pastor James who's laid these things out, and Pastor Josh who thinks about strategy in ways that I could never comprehend. And can I be transparent with you? Sometimes as shepherds, it's hard to lead sheep. Because you can pour into someone and, and, and spend hours and hours talking to them and, and, and not spending time with your family as much to, to make that happen. And then they can just ghost you. Bye. Or they could just have beef, not tell you, and then tell other people about you and leave. And one of the things that's so interesting is that oftentimes people talk about church hurt and don't realize that that applies to us too. It's painful to commit your life to serve in certain ways and to see people not necessarily just not say thank you, but to actually willingly oppose you after you've invested in them in that way. And as in Hebrews, what it says is like, look, don't, don't resist your leaders because that's of no benefit to you. And it's crazy when we could talk about unity and justice out there, but not do justice with each other in here and treating each other in a way that loves God. And I'm just being real. I'm not griping at anybody. I'm, not compl- I'm just saying that the stakes are very high and that this, for us to, to really live this thing out that Jesus is praying about, to, that we would be one, it also means that we recognize that for those who are leaving the 99 to go after the one and carry them back into the flock, that there is a plan and there's a certain perspective. And over this season in particular, we've been talking a lot about pillars, five pillars of the church. And this is something that uh, Pastor James is kind of really emphasizes the foundational things. And the thing that I think was so insightful is this even before the, the pandemic shut things down, there was this emphasis on getting back to the basics of prayer, of being biblical, of being grateful, unified, and aligned. And the amazing thing is it's right there in the passage. Already we see prayerful because Jesus is praying the whole time. We see biblical when he says, sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. Grateful because he's recognizing the ones that God gave to him and he's thanking him for that. Unified, he's praying for unity and the line that we have to recognize he's the good shepherd and that there's one play that we need to run and that's the focus and align to him and that he's assigned us to be in the unit specifically. See, it doesn't work when we just try to say, you know what, I'm just kind of spiritual. You know, I don't do the whole organized religion thing. I'm just, because the reality is if you fall and you by yourself and there's nobody to check on you, nobody you submitted yourself with who you've given permission to ask about how you're doing in your life, then you're going to stay in that ditch by yourself. And right now, there's a lot of ditches going around because we can't even tell who, some people have left the city, people are gone. Like, you have to be able to orient yourself to say, I need you. I can't do this by myself. I need other people around me to be in community and these pillars build us up as one unified bridge. You ever try to get on a bridge that don't got pillars? (laughs) That's called a swim. (laughs) That's not a drive no more. 
Jesus declares that his disciples enjoy an intimacy and oneness with each other that is analogous to his oneness with the Father. May they be one as I am one with you. And he ends this prayer with that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. That the only way for this to work is for there to be love. The only way for this to work, and see what love is us is it casts out all fear. Some of us have been hurt before. I know I've been hurt by people who claim to love God and to be of God, and it kind of can make you protective, like I'm not going there anymore. But true love casts out fear, and there's this beauty of the fact that when we are together, that there's a type of way that we can minister to each other that we could never experience outside of that. And here's the thing, remember, and this also is not about you, and it's not just about me either, because he says that the world may see and go, wow, what do y'all have there? What's going on there? Do y'all remember when Dylan Roof went into Mother Bethel Church in Charleston and killed those nine people in cold blood? And at a press conference, they announced that they, they have forgiven this man and that they weren't seeking vengeance but justice. And literally, people were like, I don't understand. I don't even, I, I can't even comprehend this. And they're like, well, it's, it's Jesus, right? Because, because we live our lives directed by him and so we submitted to him and so that, and that was a witness to the world. But guess what? We have moments in our lives every day where there are people that have rubbed us the wrong way. They didn't come in and kill us, but they maybe have killed our character or assassinated our reputation. And what are we going to do when it comes time for us to deal with that? Do we just walk away and leave? Or do we decide to wrestle together? Ephesians 4 says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Every effort. Because look at what he says. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Just one. And that's all of us together. There's just one. Maybe we be one as the Father is one with Jesus. Well, how do we win this fight? How do we do it? Well, the battle for unity reminds me of another battle that I saw. It was an epic battle called the Battle, battle at Kruger. Now, it's a remarkable YouTube video that has been seen about a 90 million times because it's one of the craziest things you could ever see. I wish I could show it to you, but we don't have eight minutes, so I'm just trying to break it down. Kruger is a national park in South Africa. And a group on safari in this national park where they got zebras and giraffes and lions and all those things, they were traveling and filming because they saw a group of lions. They saw this group of lions. They were lying and crouching. And then the, the camera pans over. And what you see on the other side of is a herd of unsuspecting buffalo walking right in the direction of the lions that they can't see because the lions are blending in with the safari behind them and they're crouching and they're eyeing this herd. Well, it's a pride, a, a pride of lions, about nine or 10 of them, about 100 buffalo. The buffalo don't see the lions until it's too late. 
They see it, and then they start running, and the lions take off after them. And there's this one small buffalo calf that goes, strays away from the herd, runs down, and the lions make a beeline right to that calf, and they just start mauling them. And you hear the people, oh my God, that's crazy. We just saw this hunt happen. And as the lions are mauling, they're right near the water. And in the water, you see a crocodile come out and grab the calf by the leg. And literally, the lions and the crocodile are playing tug of war with the calf. And they're just like, this is, I've never seen this before. And the lion, and eventually the lions win. They pull the calf out the water and they just start attacking it. And you think, wow, this is the end of this video. It's pretty depressing. <laughs> but that isn't it. They go and look back over and they see the water buffalo start coming back toward the lions. And the water buffalo then surround the lions. And then they see one water buffalo come and run and buck the lion up and it jumps into the air and then the water buffalo start chasing the lions. And they're like, I've never seen this before. This is crazy. But then they chase, I mean, there's 100. So like 25 go after the one group, 25 go after the other. And there's like 50 in the middle still looking at the, like the five, the six that's left. Like, so what's up? And they're still trying to rescue. And they're saying, no, that one's already dead. It's already gone. It's too late for that little one. But then as they get closer and they start bucking the line, they see the calf stand up. And they're like, it's not dead yet. And then the buffalo buck the, the, the lions and they run and they take the calf away and they start walking back where they was coming from like, yeah, now this is our land. King of the, king of the, what? <laughs> and here's the thing. What that was impossible for them to do by themselves. That, that little calf thought that the best option was for it to run and go it by itself. It strayed away from the herd and when it did, it was in, it was in danger. But when, the, but when the herd came together, even the king of the jungle could not contain it. There's an enemy that exists right now that's coming after you. You might feel like during this pandemic that you've been attacked. You might be like that little calf that's just surrounded and that's just been feeling like it's too late. It's not too late. As long as there's breath in your body, let yourself be with the herd. Speak to the herd. We coming. And it don't matter what neither life nor death nor principalities nor powers can separate you from the love of God. And if we stay together, we can be the type of church that the world, because this is the, the, the most amazing thing about the video, is they go, oh my gosh, look at what happened. We can't believe. Look at how they, they came together and they defeated a pride of lions. And that's what happens when the world sees us be able to defeat the lies of the enemy together. We can defeat anything together. Amen. You know why? So when we see those baptisms today, we can celebrate. We can celebrate. Because by ourselves, we're isolated and alone. But together, we got herd immunity. You heard? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you prayed for us. And we know that your prayers won't return void. Lord, we pray and ask that you would give us the strength to walk in unity. You would give us the ability to be vulnerable again. Lord, we've been hurt by sometimes people in the unit. Lord, heal us. Help us to trust again. Help us to not run astray. Lord, we've been afraid because of that which has been lost in this season. Help us to fight for community. 
And Lord, there's so much brokenness in the world around us. Help us to fight for unity, but against uniformity. Help us to fight, Lord, as one herd, as one people. Because you're, it's one faith, one Lord, and one baptism. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope today's message was encouraging for you. We'd also love to hear how God used this message to speak to you. We hear from people all across the country about what God is doing through our podcast, and we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at info at bridgechurchnyc.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle for both of those social media outlets is at bridgechurchnyc. Our website is bridgechurchnyc.com. If you're in the New York City area, we have services at 4 p.m. and 6 p.m. on Sundays at 98 Fifth Avenue in Brooklyn, New York, right next to the Barclay Center. We are praying for you and we hope to see you soon.